You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have David Pride. He's an associate professor of pathology and medicine at UC San Diego, also associate director of uh, microbiology. And uh, David, thank you for coming. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it looks like you have uh, tons of credentials. So instead of going through all of them, uh, I'd like to ask you what What's your current uh, research focus right now? And perhaps we can talk about that. Uh, so we've got two sort of separate focuses, which I think kind of blend together well. Uh, one is we're interested in the human virome, which is all of those viruses that sort of inhabit the human body, trying to figure out what they do, their role is uh, in the human body. And it turns out a lot of those viruses are bacteriophages. So another big uh, uh, research goal that we have is really to mm. understand how we can utilize bacteriophages to promote human health. So, uh, yeah, very few mention the virome at all, and bacteriophages are the viruses for bacteria, essentially, right? Exactly. So uh, that's one thing that a lot of people don't know when we sort of mention the human virome is that there are these trillions of viruses that inhabit the human body. But most of those viruses, uh, we don't believe are viruses that actually infect the human. They're actually viruses that infect the trillions of bacteria that inhabit the human body. Um, yeah, I've, well, that's crazy. Uh, this professor, I guess, uh, Frank Ryan, he wrote a book called uh virology. I'm sure you've either read it or you correspond with him, but uh, that's where I first learned about viruses and, the, you know, in a virome. Um, I, I've also learned, uh, I mean, supposedly seven or eight percent of our, our DNA came from viruses that I guess endogenized their, their DNA into our DNA. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, um, you know, because uh, we got into our study uh, of the human virome uh, mainly because we wanted to be looking at viruses that infect humans. Uh, it just sort of turned out that many of the viruses we were looking at were actually viruses that infect uh, bacteria. Uh, but I was really interested to start out in those viruses that infect humans, particularly viruses like retroviruses, which are viruses that will come in, uh, uh, infect the human, and insert their DNA uh, into the genome of the human, and then in response to some signals, eventually sort of pop back out of the human uh, virome. So they're sort of viruses that, that can live with us for long periods of time. And as you examine the uh, human genome, you can actually see evidence of viruses that sort of have popped in uh, to the human genome and just happen to still be there uh, over the course of many years. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, the viruses that, uh, I guess, endogenize into the human genome, 
what are they doing and do they have a timer? How do they know how long to sit there? And do they, under certain conditions, do they then produce more of their own using the cell's machinery for some purpose? So, so I have to say, we don't fully understand that about virus human genome. Neither do we understand though, that about viruses of, of uh, bacteria either. So, for example, um, uh, viruses and bacteria have two sort of separate uh, types of lifestyles. One is where they just come in exclusively kill the the bacteria with the goal of they come into the bacteria, make a bunch of children, kill the bacteria host, and by killing it, they spread all those children around uh, to to uh, uh, identify or to find the next host. The other sort of lifestyle that they have is where they actually will come into the genome uh, uh, or into the bacteria integrate their DNA into the genome, and in essence, uh, using that sort of lifestyle, the survival of the host becomes survival of the virus, because as long as the host continues to live, that virus that has integrated itself into the genome uh, continues to live as well. And uh, so we know that that's a strategy that um, these bacteriophages you ensure their survival, but it's also uh, the strategy that a lot of these retroviruses uh, in the human uh, genome uh, have used to sort of ensure their survival as well. Unfortunately, we don't fully understand those uh, that, uh, uh, that sort of uh, let the virus know that it's time to come out. For example, some viruses at some low level will just continue to make copies of themselves even though they're integrated in the genome. Uh, and some respond to very specific signals that say, okay, something's going on. It's time to just kill these hosts and, uh, and produce as many uh, of ourselves as possible uh, so that we spread. In viruses, we recently have some of the signals that they respond to, at least in bacteriophages, but we don't understand those signals well uh, uh, for some of the retrovirus humans. But is their goal always to replicate and kill, or I guess, you know, the ones that endogenize, it doesn't appear to appear to be their goal. It's not like they're going yeah. into a dormant state, sitting in our body and hiding out that way. They're actually, amazingly, becoming part of us, which is crazy, and guiding our evolution. But what's their yeah. their goal there? It's weird. Yeah, I, I, I think the goal there simply is, is a survival strategy. Um, you know, uh, there are two ways to survive, as, as I sort of pointed out. One is to make a bunch of children and spread those children as far as you can to identify uh, hosts where they can make more children and just continue to multiply over time. And a, what, what actually seems like a bit simpler strategy is just to integrate into the host. Um, and that way, as long as that host survives, you survive. So the way I tend to think about uh, the goals of viruses in general is that their sole goal is to survive. It's just a matter of which strategy they're trying to survive. Do you consider viruses living things or? Oh boy, that's a, that's really an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I will say, you know, uh, growing up, I was taught, you know, that viruses were living things, um, you know, and I know there's a lot of people that don't really consider them living things. I mean, uh, you know, there's plenty of bacteria and viruses and, and other types of cells. I mean, they don't have a centralized nervous system. Um, 
And, you know, what viruses really do is they, you know, use a bunch of genes to take over a cell's machinery and replicate and make uh, more of themselves. Um, it, it's, I, I think it's an open question whether you consider that life or not. Uh, I know a lot of people fall on one side or the other, um, but growing up, you know, uh, what I was taught was that viruses are a form of life, and I've, so I've sort of, you know, kept that with me over the years. Well, the bacteria are pretty much unarguably alive. Why not viruses? I mean, I guess because they go through dormant states and they have even less cellular machinery that people don't consider them to be alive, but they appear to have discernment. They appear to have a, a, a will towards, you know, making more of themselves, uh, a survival, I don't know call it instinct, but, you know, they're, they're, they appear to have all the hallmarks of life. Yeah, and I won't argue with it. I, I think realistically one can make a reasonable case that, uh, that you should consider virus as a form of life. But I've also heard people argue the other side. And, uh, you know, for me, it tends not to matter so much in that uh, my, our real goals are to figure out how to manipulate them to promote human health. Um, so whether one considers them alive or not um, really is a bit immaterial to the sorts of we're trying to move forward. Right. Well, what are you trying to do? Are you trying? To, are you studying, uh, you know, specifically bacteriophages and perhaps uh, <laughs> seeing which ones uh, kill bacteria that, that kill us and maybe trying to stop that? Or what's your focus? Yeah. So um, uh, our our focus is it's it's broad. Um, but one ma major focus is just understanding how we can utilize bacteriophages to manipulate human microbial. And the reason that that's really important is, you know, there's been a lot of research over the past 15 years now into the human microbiome, uh, where we know, you know, all of these trillions of bacteria that inhabit the body, um, they serve a number of functions, whether that be protect us from pathogens, uh, whether that be involved in certain physiological Biologic processes, these things we know are really, really important uh, to the development, maturation, etc., uh, of human. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of research and effort going into figuring out how to manipulate these. Uh, for example, uh, we know that, um, uh, in fact, uh, when one has, for example, a lean or an obese phenotype, uh, a large part of that are actually the microbes in the body. You know, if you take microbes, for example, from a lean mouse and you put them into an obese mouse, uh, feed, it, feed the obese mouse the same diet, those mice will become lean. If you do the exact opposite and you take uh, microbiota from an obese mouse and you put them into a lean mouse feeding the same diet, those mice will become fat. And that's sort of a sentinel experiment that sort of tells us that a lot of the phenotypes we see in here actually can be at least in part dictated uh, by microbes. So uh, once we figured that out, the, there became a huge effort to figure out how do we manipulate these communities so as to do things like promote lean phenotypes or to promote other sort of healthy phenotypes. We are really interested in how we viruses, mostly bacteriophages, to manipulate microbial communities so that we reproduce healthy phenotypes, ideally in humans. What's the, what's the environment like inside of us? I mean, is it just teeming with bacteriophages and how are they affecting our microbial constituents? Are they continually, you know, thinning the herd of various uh, microbes in our body? 
Yeah, so that's really interesting uh, in that, uh, you know, probably one of the biggest things that we've learned about microbial communities that has been, uh, I would say, one of the bigger surprises uh, uh, for me is that, um, you know, we sort of have learned over the years that the bacteria that you have today are going to be very, very similar to the bacteria you have five years from now or a year from now or even 10 years from now. Um, in other words, our microbes sort of grow with us. Um, uh, and the one thing that I never believed is that our viruses sort of uh, grow and mature uh, with us as well. I, my assumption was always that um, viruses come in, they kill their host, and then they spread. Um, but now that we know after all of these years of just looking at the human virome, again, mostly talking about bacteriophages, um, are that the same viruses you have today will be very, very similar to the same viruses you have a year from now, uh, et cetera. So that these uh, viruses and bacteria um, uh, are both sort of part of a stable and healthy human microbiome. Uh, thus, uh, one way to think about it is, you know, uh, is that they've sort of reached a sort of stalemate, right? Because all of these bacteria uh, don't want to be killed by viruses, and all of the viruses obviously want to kill bacteria um, or to just stay in the genomes of these bacteria as a survival strategy. So there's a huge competition that's going on on all the surface human body uh, between bacteria and viruses all the time. And we don't have a sense as to sort of how that plays out, but we know that the competition must be fierce and that it's going on all the time between bacteria and viruses in our body. Well, a few thoughts here. I'm wondering, um, again, how do viruses change the metabolome of you know, the microbiome? Are they stressing the bacteria or causing them in some way to alter what they would normally produce as metabolites? You know, are they, um, when they're there, how are they changing the, comp the competition of the various microbial constituents? Are they, um, yes. yeah, I just wonder how, so, how the dynamic is. Yeah, so the, the, there's several things that they can do. One is um, when we think about a competition between bacteria and viruses, let's take the sort of, uh, let's take, say, the virus that only can live by killing their host. Um, what tends to happen is that, you know, uh, the bacteria comes in, identifies its host, kills its host, spreads its children, uh, but then before the host is completely wiped out or eliminated, that host develops mutation, um, so it resists the virus. Um, w uh, but um, that virus, because in the process of making a bunch of children, it's, um, uh, uh, it's a low fidelity process where that virus ends up with a lot of mutants, for example. Um, some of those mutants are able to um, uh, uh, identify and kill the mutated host. Uh, so that what you get is sort of a back and forth that goes from generation, 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 where virus mutates uh, to, uh, uh, to overcome resistance, the host mutates to resist, and it just keeps going back and forth over generations. And if you look sort of at, at the uh, bacteria, what you'll see is that it's kind of its uh, levels are going up and they're going down over time, up and down, up and down, as you know they uh, compete uh, uh, with their sort of uh, 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 viral, uh, viral viral predators. Uh, so that um, 
as as the level of the bacteria goes down, then there's going to be less of that bacteria to make more metabolites, and there's going to be more of other bacteria that can grow up and make uh, uh, and make metabolites. So that you can sort of start to envision how over time, with the virus killing its host, the host starting to recover, et cetera, uh, that you might see sort of an ebb and flow of different uh, uh, metabolites uh, taking place. Making this, I guess, a little um, bit more complicated. Oh, sorry, it's, go ahead. It's not just- but it's not just kill or no kill. It's also the virus. I think the bacteriophages endogenize into the bacteria, alter its machinery, and maybe they lead to the creation of metabolites that weren't created before, or or they stop the production of certain metabolites. I mean, they're they're there to use the bacteria's machinery for their own purposes. You know, so I would, th- I would yeah. think that would be very disruptive to the uh, you know to the normal functioning of them. That that is also uh, something that can take place. Um, the one thing we didn't mention is that uh, you know when one of these bacteriophages integrates into the host, um, uh, those bacteriophages can still be, I guess, transcribed, or their proteins, uh, or their DNA can still make proteins, uh, et cetera. Um, and as we mentioned, you know, under those circumstances, as long as the host survives then the virus also survives. Um, So one strategy that viruses have sort of picked up over time is uh, by bringing things along with them as they infect the host um, that are actually beneficial to survival of the host. Because as we said, you know, under those circumstances, the virus wants the host to survive. So why not, uh, for example, pick up metabolites or uh, things, uh, for example, that are involved in fighting system that allow that virus, uh, that allow that uh, host of the virus uh, to be able to survive over time. So that is almost certainly an element of it. An additional element, though, would be that the viral community cells are not static, meaning that we're exposed to new viruses all the time, particularly uh, when it comes to bacteriophages. Probably the surface of the planet is full of bacteriophages, so that as we leave our house and we you know, see new environments, we go to the store, we go to the restroom, etc., we're constantly being exposed to viruses that we haven't been exposed to before. So one element of, um, you know, as you were sort of mentioning, doing things like changing the microbiome, potentially changing metabolites as well, is the fact that we are seeing uh, new viruses to which these bacteria uh, are not resistant to um, so that uh, you could go somewhere, be exposed to a virus, that virus starts wiping out a good portion of, say, the E. coli or something in your gut, and that will alt- and that has the potential to alter your metabolism. So both of those things, I think, play a potential role um, in how these viruses may be at the microbiome over time. So how do you, how do you pick this apart? I mean, like, well, first of all, are there any predators for bacteriophages or viruses themselves? So um, that, that's, that's sort of an interesting question. Are there predators? Um, there are certainly things that kind of piggyback on them. Um, so in, in other words, um, there are viruses or virons or whatever the term might be that sort of over time being integrated into a genome have lost their capacity to make complete viruses. Um, but they're able to sort of piggyback uh, on the idea of when a new virus comes in, they can use the machinery of that new virus to actually make um, uh, uh, viruses themselves. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure if you would refer to that as predators, but there are things out there in nature that do take advantage of viruses so that um, 
uh, viruses are sort of not a, I, I would guess, predator sort of free uh, uh, part of the food chain. Uh, in fact, they, they have some of their own sets of problems. But some of the things that viruses really have to compete with are the bacteria hosts themselves. And that's, that's I think, one thing that we really haven't uh, mentioned much at all, but a lot of the bacteria don't really want to have viruses. So they develop um, different mechanisms of, of resistance, whether that be to try to chew the viruses uh, up, whether that be to try to uh, take a piece of the virus and identify that virus as foreign so that the next time you see it, um, that virus can infect you. But uh, bacteria actually expend a lot of energy trying to prevent themselves from infected by viruses. So, again, can you go a little bit more specific into the mechanisms by which bacteria use to identify and protect themselves against viruses? Sure. Um, so one thing um, that, uh, and it's one of the first things I probably ever studied as a graduate student, are these things called restriction modification systems, um, where what uh, uh, an organism will do is it'll pick up a DNA that has a restriction in an enzyme and a modification enzyme. And what that modification enzyme will do is it will go through your DNA and modify it at certain residues. Um, and that's sort of how it recognizes self. Um, because uh, any piece of DNA that is modified at a very specific residue, the, um, that's recognized as self. Therefore, anything that comes in, say a virus or even a plasmid or any other parasitic piece of DNA that is not modified as that, at that residue will be recognized as non-self, and, uh, and the restriction part of the restriction modification system will chew it up. Um, so that's something that bacteria have used for ages um, to basically identify foreign PNA and to chew them up, just picking up restriction uh, modification system. Another thing that they use are these things called CRISPR-Cas systems. Um, and CRISPR-Cas systems are sort of like an adaptive immune system uh, for a, a, a bacteria. So when they see a bacteriophage, um, they actually can uh, look at that bacteriophage's DNA, take a small little snippet of it, and then uh, put that piece of DNA in its genome. Uh, and then in the future, when that bacteria sees that exact same or highly similar piece of DNA, it will recognize it as foreign, and then it will chew it up. Um, so it works similar to the way a restriction modification system uh, works, but CRISPR-Cas systems, I guess, were uh, recognized a little bit over, I think, 10 years or so uh, ago now. But we know that they are sort of widespread in the bacterial world to help prevent uh, bacteria from being infected by bacteriophages. That's amazing. So <laughs> that's crazy. So what, um, how do you pick this apart, this crazy environment, this soup of bacteria, fungi, yeast, viruses, et cetera? How do you figure out what's going on and what do you There's a couple of ways to pick it apart. Um, one of the ways that science typically has tried to pick apart really complex systems like this is to just dumb it down. Um, so in other words, if I've got a community that's got 500 bacteria and 1,000 viruses in there, I'll just create a model system. And in that model system, it'll have 10 bacteria 
and five viruses uh, because that we can handle um, and we can understand and we can track each of them. We can't do it with 500 and 1,000. We can do it with, you know, 10 and 5. So that's a large part of what science has done uh, over time to try to understand what's going on in complex systems is just try to dumb down the model. One of the things that we're doing um, is trying to look at these without dumbing down the model. Um, So um, if the system's got 500 bacteria, let's take 500 bacteria. Bacteria. If the system has a thousand phages, let's take a thousand phages and let's see what happens when we're together. And what we've been doing is doing what we sort of call transfer experiments, where um, we have these sort of incredibly complex systems where you can take someone's microbiome, uh, you can actually grow most all of the bacteria in that microbiome in a test tube, um, and then what we do transfers. So um, I, I will take the viruses from, say, one person's test tube and put them into another person's test tube and just sort of ask the question, what happens when, you know, person X's viruses meets person Y's bacteria? Um, so that's one of the ways we're trying to approach this complex problem uh, uh, by not dumbing down the system. And then once we figure out what person X's viruses do to person Y's bacteria, then we'll start to focus in on individual bacteria to say, okay, this bacteria Z, what's going on with it? Is there uh, uh, a virus that's also infecting uh, bacteria Z? So that's sort of the approach that we're taking. It's it's an approach where we don't have full results yet, but we're really encouraged by some of them in the system. What about post-mediated interactions, you know? In a person, let's say the person's immune system, and then the yeah. person's own cells. You know, there's interactions. I'm sure between the bacteria and the person's cells, and perhaps directly in some cases, viruses in the person's cells and bacteria and viruses. Yeah. I mean, what if the host yeah. plays a tremendous role? in orchestrating or guiding the whole system? Well, that's much more difficult to model, I'd have to say. Um, At this point, we are happy to just look at the interactions between virus and bacteria, and then down the line, look at um, what's going on in the host. But we've got ways in which we're hoping uh, to address that. And some of the ways are by looking at, for example, animal model systems. so, in other words, I can take bacteria X and bacteria uh, and virus Y, have them compete with one another in a test tube, and we can sort of see what are the dynamics, who's the winner uh, uh, in that competition, et cetera. What happens if we take that and we put it in an animal? Um, uh, uh, so we give the animal an infection with bacteria X, and then we put uh, virus Y in there um, and see what the interactions are. Uh, because in a test tube, bacteria X may win that battle hands down. But once we take it out of a test tube, we put it in animal, uh, where the animal system may have some impact on the dynamics that we see in that competition, maybe we'll end up with. Um, so those are things that we're strongly looking at doing, and I know other groups are uh, are uh, trying to investigate uh, what happens, look at these sort of complex animals as well. So what have you figured out about bacteria and you know, virus interactions? You mentioned how the bacteria will use CRISPR-Cas to sample the virus and endogenize either a defense to it or maybe the virus material directly. Um, what other kind of interactions have you seen where you take you know, one host bacteria and cross it with another person's or another um, 
organisms, uh, viruses. Well, I would say that, um, you know, the, 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 and I, I think I mentioned this already, the biggest surprise for me has been in studying how person viruses are. I just never, um, that, you know, the same virus you have today will be the same virus you have a year from um, even bacterial virus. It's just sort of uh, amazing how sort of interaction between host and virus seem to end up at stalemates, but not just a stalemate that lasts for a short period of time, but stalemates that last almost uh, uh, indefinitely. That, that's been one of the biggest uh, sort of surprises that, um, you know, it's initially I've had some difficult time understanding. The other thing that we have found looking at some of these, just trying to figure out some of the interaction, um, are some of the that viruses pick up. Um, so viruses, um, we sort of uh, um, refer to them as sort of being a bit loose. Um, you know, they'll, you know, when they integrate into a genome, when they come out, what comes out, what comes back out of the genome is usually not the exact same copy of that virus, but oftentimes it's that virus plus uh, some other pieces of DNA that are part of that bacteria's uh, a genome. Uh, and in that process, well, by the virus, uh, when it comes out of the genome, also taking part of the genome with it um, is that when it spreads to the next bacteria, it can bring news to the uh, to new viruses. So some of the things that we've seen some of these viruses carrying, so for example, see viruses that are carrying involved in antibiotic resistance, right? Obviously, a virus doesn't need uh, you know, antibiotic resistance because the virus isn't susceptible to an antibiotic. But they bring those things alone because they help to ensure their survival because uh, as long as the host survives when that antibiotic is present, then the virus also survives. Um, and we've seen um, some of these viruses carrying things that are involved in uh, ways to evade the immune system, uh, things like uh, chopping up a part of the system, uh, which is called complement, or chopping up immunoglobulins, which are made by B cells. Um, we see sorts of things in viruses, and we immediately know, hey, these aren't things that the viruses are using really for their own benefit. They're really used to protect their hosts. As long as their hosts survive, they're able to sort of survive and thrive in many, many settings. Hey, this is crazy. Um, I'm not even sure what to ask you at this point, but I mean, where where are some of the near-term breakthroughs that you're, you're sensing are going to happen in particular with your research? What questions are coming yeah, well, close yeah. to being answered? Well, I'll, I'll say, you know, I, I, I'm really hopeful that some of the research is going to really help to uncover um, how we virus manipulate uh, uh, the microbiome, uh, uh, particularly to manipulate phenotypes. We talked a little bit about lean and obese phenotypes. Um, uh, wouldn't it be great to be able to, you know, for example, take a virus that kills certain bacteria um, uh, that uh, where those bacteria use promote uh, uh, obese phenotypes, and suddenly you have uh, a lean type. So those are some of the questions that we're really asking that we're trying to experiment to demonstrate that viruses can uh, uh, be intimately involved in those processes. The other things we're trying to figure out is really sort of how to build or how to find a better virus uh, because some of the things that we've really been involved here at USD, particularly um, we've got a, a, a that's really involved in a, a phage therapy is the idea of bacteriophage to treat uh, pathogens that are resistant to antibiotics. Um, so um, 
we're really hoping that a lot of the sort of work that we're doing, looking at the virome, leads us to identify individual bacteriophages that can be to kill pathogens that cause human illness, Staph aureus, Pseudomonas, or Enterococcus, and those sorts of things. So those are that's part of the other thing that we're uh, in the laboratory, but uh, really working with a lot of collaborators uh, across the U.S. Uh, uh, and the world, uh, really to try to figure out how we can identify better uh, phages and how we design studies to demonstrate that antibiotics are by which um, uh, to either manipulate the microbiome or ill. Well, why is there such, you know, pun intended or double entendre intended resistance? to anything but broad-spectrum antibiotics. You know, what are some of the, it seems like phages have been known about for quite a while, but there's very little movement in that area. I don't see, yeah. I mean, I don't know, I don't see everything, but are there a lot of clinical trials going on of phages or is it really slow? Like what's the stage? There's not, uh, there's not a lot of clinical trials. There are, uh, there's definitely gonna be at least a couple that I know of in 2020 uh, using phages, but, um, uh, you know, for a long time, you know, uh, antibiotics has sort of been a bit of a crutch uh, in modern medicine. You know, we use them for anybody who's coming into the hospital with low blood pressure or fever. We just use them empirically. And the reason we've done that is that they they work so well, and they have worked so well over time. Unfortunately, you know, um, uh, bacteria are organisms that like to evolve. And the one thing that we figured out over the course of the last 30 years is that they evolve, um, uh, but they can evolve very specific means. In other words, if you've got a hospital that uses antibiotic X, what do you see the bacteria in, in that hospital do? You see them evolve with antibiotic X. And if you take antibiotic X away, see that that resistance starts to go away. So one of the problems that we've seen so much is just uh, over antibiotics in medicine has caused you know uh, us to see emerging antibiotic X, antibiotic Y, antibiotic Z uh, as well. And at some point, you get a certain critical mass where you don't even need the antibiotic around anymore. These sort of things uh, by which bacteria become resistant just start to move throughout the population, and you see that your prevalence of them go up over time. Uh, so that in medicine, we're now dealing uh, a lot of microbes that tend to have high prevalence for antibiotic resistance. And really, the, the only means by which we can respond to that are to develop new antibiotics for which there hasn't been a great movement towards or to develop antibiotic alternatives. And I think we're pretty clearly sort of antibiotic alternative uh, development era right now. And that's why we're starting to see a lot more interest in phages because there's so many of them on the planet um, and they're just such an obvious uh, antibiotic uh, alternative. How do you, um, how does a bacteria and a phage like find each other in the wild? Is there any, I mean, maybe this is crazy, but I don't know, without any long range signaling, and yeah. long range well, could be um, over like six inches. How do these creatures find each other? It's weird. Well, uh, you know, uh, part of it uh, is, you know, part of it, of course, is just dumb luck, right? You know, uh, two people, uh, two needles in a haystack finding each other. But, you know, um, one of the strategies of, uh, of uh, these bacteriophages uh, is to... Uh, produce a lot of themselves, right? So the more of yourself you produce, the more you can spread out in search of uh, new hosts. So part of the strategy, uh, particularly for a bacteriophage, is just to pre 
pr uh, to produce so many of themselves um, that they eventually uh, find a host. Um, there's one sort of other concept, though, um, that uh, has recently come out uh, uh, of a research group right here in uh, San Diego Forest Rowers Group, um, where they've actually shown that um, uh, uh, these bacteriophages sort of motion called subdiffusive motion. Uh, and it's sort of a means for these organisms to move um, to increase their ability to contact a potential host. Uh, so I, I think it, it's also pretty clear that phages have evolved in ways to uh, uh, increase their potential for contacting p uh, potential hosts. The other thing that um, that some of them is they're able to bind to surface. Um, so um, you can imagine uh, uh, how that might be beneficial if you're a virus, uh, because uh, if you can bind to a specific surface um, and you've just got an intact virion, you can just sit there and wait an unsuspecting host comes by um, that you can uh, infect. So there's several different strategies that we know of that these viruses are using to increase their probability to contact hosts, and all of them seem to sort of uh, uh, be cumulative in survival of these viruses. But have you or, or any scientists taken bacteria, cultures them in a dish, and you knew it was, or to the best of your knowledge, it was antiseptic, there's no viruses around, and then all of a sudden you see that there's, you know, there's phages around them interacting and preying upon them. Well, uh, I don't think we've done that before. Um, you know, I, I certainly, I mean, the experiment you described certainly sounds like something that probably has happened before. Um, but um, uh, uh, the one thing that I, I probably didn't particularly about these uh, bacteriophages is they do tend to have rather lit host range, meaning that um, if you compare to an antibiotic, if you take an antibiotic like penicillin, um, it's pretty easy to predict, um, you know, that uh, penicillin will kill bacteria X and bacteria Y, uh, et cetera. When you're using a bacteriophage, it's not nearly uh, that predictable. And that sort of becomes a real problem when it's hard to, uh, 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 to predict the host range. Uh, and in addition, the host range is sort of limited. Um, if you're growing any given bacteria in a test tube, for example, it just limits the potential that just by random bad luck, um, a phage is going to come by, um, contact that bacteria, and that phage just happens uh, to be a, a potential predator of that bacteria. So I think all of those things together limit the potential for that happening. Um, with that said, there's so many bacteria and so many phages on the planet. What you're describing is probably something that happens all the time. It's just probably unlikely to happen if you're growing a bacteria in a test tube uh, uh, in a research laboratory. Well, maybe you should try it. It'd probably be an easy experiment. <laughs> well, you know, we, I will say we grow bacteria all the time that don't have uh, bacteriophages uh, in, a, in a test tube. Um, we've yet to have, say, a bacteria, you know, just kind of die off. Um, and us believe that that's happened because randomly a bacteriophage, uh, uh, it came across a, a bacteriophage that can kill it. I guess that's possible that it's happened. We just have never actually tested that something like that has happened. Well, have you ever cultured bacteria and then looked at the microenvironment of the bacteria a few days into the culture to see if there's anything, you know, any phages there, any other creatures that are well, that have been attracted? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we've done that. Um, 
but you know, I don't think we've been able to answer the question sort of as you put it. Um, usually, you know, when we've done that in the past, it's because um, when we cultured it, we found that oh, that bacteria actually has a phage that's integrated into its genome already, and that's what ended up um, in the milieu. Um, I don't think we've uh, ever sort of assessed it in the way of, you know, some bacteriophage, you know, floated through the air and somehow made it into the culture and is killing our bacteria. Yeah, it's just, anyway, the, the more I ask, the, it's just, yeah, it's hard to discern what's going on. Um, yeah, you know, and I just think about, um, you know, I mean, because what you describe, I think, is an interesting experiment. It's just, I would imagine probably having to have a, a thousand tubes of bacteria growing uh, to um, see one event happen, you know, because it's a low, it, it, what I believe is it's probably a relatively low probability uh, thing that probably does happen, but we'd have to have so many bacteria in the lab to be able to identify that happening. And there's also like what comes to mind too is the chicken and the egg problem. You know, what came first, viruses or bacteria, you know, where, where do viruses come from? You know, they, well, they, one place they come from bacterial or eukaryotic cell machinery, but where do they originate? I know you, there's no answer. Yeah, it, that, that's such a difficult one to, uh, 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 to answer. I, I mean, it's, it's easy for a microbiologist to envision, um, uh, you know, a virus maybe, you know, um, emerging from a plasmid or something like that uh, over time. Uh, but uh, no one has the actual answer for how these things. Uh... Um, and then for a moment, going back to the um, the evaluation of antibiotics, you know, you mentioned that, again, bacteria in a certain setting that are exposed to a certain antibiotic, they develop resistance. And then when that, that stimulus is taken away, that the resistance may go away over time. Um, uh -huh. Why not have bacteria that you expose deliberately to, let's say, a whole host of, uh, you know, of common antibiotics or take a, a, a multi-drug resistant one and then see what phages are tending to interact with it and which ones are successful and which ones are not. And then you'd probably have a, uh, you know, a roadmap of, of what to do to intervene with that bacteria. Yeah. And, and you know, a, a lot of people are trying to take advantage of that kind of strategy, um, you know, because, uh, you know, we had sort of mentioned the sorts of phages that we work. So, for example, in phage therapy, where you're actually trying to use a phage to eradicate a pathogen that's making someone sick, we typically use only viruses that come in and kill the host. We, we never use viruses that have the potential to come in, integrate into the genome, and perhaps even support the survival of the host. Um, we always use the other uh, uh, types of viruses. So um, uh, in, in our sort of strat, uh, way of thinking about it, and unfortunately, I think I forgot your question. What was your question? Well, I was saying if you take a, uh, I guess probably the shortest shortcut is you take a multi-drug resistant bacteria, and then you look and see what phages interact with it, which ones kill it, and then from there, if you find someone that kill it, you know, why not use those? Yeah, so um, back, back on that note, we were talking about viruses that sort of integrate into genome. So we tend not to work a lot with viruses that integrate into the genome. But the one thing that we know about these viruses is they've already figured out, you know, how to attack this particular host, for example. Um, they, they've, they've, asked, uh, they've, they've already answered a lot of the questions we want. The only problem is that they have a propensity to integrate into the host instead of killing it. So one of the strategies that a lot of people are trying to use now is to take those viruses that have integrated into the host, take them out of the host, 
and just get rid of whatever machinery they have that allows them to integrate into the host. And suddenly those viruses that used to be integrating machines suddenly just become perfect killing machines. Uh, so that's what a lot of people are trying to do. Unfortunately, these viruses aren't nearly to work with as the ones that typically just come by and kill their host. But, that, but what you sort of mentioned really is the strategy that a lot of folks are trying to use. Can you just rename the, the five or six people you mentioned? Sure. I mentioned Emma Allen Verco. She's at the University of Guelph in Canada. She's got the in vitro system for growing complicated microbial communities. Um, I mentioned Forrest Rower, who's at San Diego State uh, University, um, and he's sort of a pioneer of working on the uh, on the virome. Um, and a lot of the concepts I talked about today, um, his lab's really responsible for a lot of that um, that stuff. Um, and he really works on cystic fibrosis now. And he, I mean, he's he's he he'd probably be a great person to have on. I had mentioned Chip Schooley. Actually, his name is Robert Schooley. And uh, he's at UCSD um, working on phage therapy. Paul Turner, um, who's at Yale, okay. is also on phage therapy. Oh, I should mention Benjamin Chan, who's also at Yale working on phage therapy. He may be easier to get than Paul. Okay, okay. Well, amazing stuff. I appreciate your uh, patient responses to my questions. Where, where can people go to, uh, you know, to find out more about, you know, viruses and your lab and, you know, pages, et cetera. What, what are you, what's your recommendation? Well, I would say, uh, particularly for a general audience interested in some uh, sort of simple concepts in virology or at human virome and bacteriophage therapy and antibiotic groups, which are all things I'm really interested in, is I, I wrote a couple of articles for a website called The Conversation. Um, and I think that um, those articles really are very sort of simple, and I think they explain really a lot of the concepts that we sort of talked about now. Um, and the best part is they point to a lot of different resources uh, where folks uh, should be able to go uh, to get more information uh, if they want to learn more about what folks are trying to do to virus to promote human health. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate, uh, again, your time, your questions, and, uh, and everything you're working on. So, David, thank you for coming. Right. It was my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now and the companies that are using these technologies for the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, Please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.